I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hello, Ian. Welcome to A Bit Lit. Thank you for joining me. Hello, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And um, could you tell me a bit about yourself? Uh, yes, okay. So um, at the minute, I am sat in Cambridge, which is where I work usually um, at Clare College. Um, and there I teach and work with um, Renaissance literature. So, broadly speaking, literature between 1500 ish, 1700 ish. Um, and then within that, more specifically, I'm particularly interested in, I guess, drama um, between sort of at the turn of the um, 15th, 16th, no, sorry, <laughs> 16th, 17th centuries. Um, and uh, more specifically there, um, I'm particularly interested in, um, I think I've got a web profile somewhere where I've really pretentiously said the nonverbal constituents of performance. So basically... Oh things that aren't words um so um at the most specific punctuation marks and um more generally sort of physical things what the body is up to on stage how that comes across in text um that's yeah. fascinating and are those two things linked do you think that punctuation marks are also telling us what the body is up to on stage or are they sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum for you um, I, so I hadn't really thought of that. I, I, I think that that kind of phrase, the nonverbal constituents, was me trying to kind of bodge two projects <laughs> together um, in the sense that, uh, yeah, punctuation had, had been sort of really looking at things like print and how things like hesitation or interruption might have, I don't know, been, been recognised um, even in passing, in putting together sort of plays in text. And then I also sort of wanted to write about things like people falling over, um, <laughs> things like that. But I suppose that there is something, um, I, and I'm finding increasingly those two things I'm bodging together are beginning to speak to each other now. So mm. you begin to think about how, I don't know, how a character kind of embodies themselves, how they, I don't know, how they might act more or less compulsively. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's really interesting because... Um, yeah, thinking about you narrowing down so, so that you're working on this specific time period, this specific set of texts within this time period, and these specific non-verbal constituents within those texts. Because at the same time, I know you're also interested in, and I think have recently finished a book on, mm -hmm. how these things speak to, to today. So how the very specific area of text you're interested in and the non-verbal aspects of that affect how we teach plays and how we think about them is that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes so the, the book is called Shakespeare for Snowflakes which wasn't really originally my title and I'm not deliberately trying to bait Breitbart readers with it um, <laughs> so it's it I, I yeah I'll explain the title in a bit I, I suppose but that came about I think through lecturing on um I guess slapstick bits 
of originally Renaissance literature. So this was um, writing for um, the Cambridge English third year tragedy paper. Um, and we had guidance as lecturers, which said, if you're going to lecture on something that covered, I think the phrase was distressing material, potentially very challenging material, and it wasn't immediately obvious um, from, the, from the title of the lecture series, for example, then you might want to consider putting a small warning mm. next to the title, next to the individual lectures. And so that got me thinking a little bit about what it would mean for a playwright to present something particularly challenging, but that not be immediately obvious um, and why it might be particularly challenging because it's not immediately obvious. Um, and so that actually got me thinking a little bit about the, the slapstick treatment of an actor's body from time to time, what that means to dump an actor on the, um, the boards of the stage, make them act ridiculously, and then the flip side to that, the ways in which an actor's body might kind of resist a playwright's control. Um, so it, it struck me that there were things that looked ridiculous in a lot of the plays I was looking, looking at, which were potentially um, quite unsettling because they were so ridiculous, because they were so disrespectful to the actor's mm -hmm. agency. That's fascinating. So sort of finding distress in places that you might not expect to from the from the text alone. But then I suppose also potentially the other side of the coin, finding comedy in moments that might appear to be moments of distress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that was I think. Um, yeah, what started out, I think, is quite a basic project, which was for this tragedy paper saying there are these moments which are ostensibly very serious and they actually come across ridiculous or that there are these um, moments in plays which seem very light-hearted frivolous but actually they may be more serious if you look at them increasingly i found that i was finding quite complicated things going on with power dynamics whether that was between a playwright and the actor or between the actor and the audience mm -hmm. and then once i began to think more and more about what these warnings on the lectures were doing what the power dynamic was between me and say the students in the room as well so when you surprise someone in a way by seeming to present something quite serious but then it turns out to be ridiculous or vice versa i was finding that that was often kind of yes putting your audience in a particularly awkward potentially distressing place so i ended up writing about that Increasingly. Wow, that's so interesting because I feel like I always think I'm doing very meta things by thinking about the power dynamic between the actors and the audience, but I don't think I've literally ever taken that another level to think about the playwright and the actors and what I always think about what implied stage directions might be doing to bodies in scenes for the characters, but not about how that might be forcing the actors into particular positions. And then it's really interesting to extrapolate from there about the power dynamics in the lecture theatre um, and I'm going to follow up the second half of that and the, what it means to teach these plays a bit more in a moment but I wondered could you give an example of one of these moments of power dynamics just to help us sort of yeah picture what it is that you're talking about in terms of the plays themselves. I think um, maybe one of the most famous examples one of the examples that I kept coming back to increasingly when I was working on this stuff was um, Gloucester uh, taken apparently to Dover Cliff in, in Lear um, and the the thing that struck me about that well, first of all Gloucester being blind thinking he's being led to Dover Cliff to throw himself off the edge and then um, it turning out that he's not throwing himself off Dover Cliff is something very disorientating for for Gloucester obviously but also 
for the audience and that we've got nothing really to go on other than these competing um these competing claims about the environment or about what the stage is meant to stand for. Um, so Gloucester saying, methinks the ground is even, Edgar saying horrible steep. Um, keeping the audience in the dark in a way um, for a very long time um, until Edgar reveals to us that he hasn't actually fallen off the cliff. That um, I just think is a really extraordinary seen partly because it, it's such a digression in a way that that mm. taking such a long time to to mess around with us like that um and then in terms of disorienting the audience the, the more i thought about it the more i thought actually the, the the physical action of the actor playing gloucester falling on the floor is um is really obviously bogus, I think. So I did uh, my, my most intense level of research, I was trying this out in my kitchen, just kind of falling over, over and over again. And it, it struck me that while I wanted, first of all, to argue that there are these two competing truth claims about um, whether the ground is steep, whether the ground is even, whether Gloucester has fallen off a cliff or not, um, Actually, it seems to me physically it's very hard to to present something um, that's in any way going to make us believe, fully believe that he's fallen from a height, that the physical actions seem to me very different. Um, and so the nature of that challenge um, then, yeah, I, I found really, really weird, basically. And it, it seemed to be going beyond a suspension of disbelief. It wasn't really a means to an end. It was, I think, something of a power play on Shakespeare's part. I can make you believe this, even though you know that this isn't really real. Um, and I think that then kind of turbocharges the end of Lear when Cordelia is brought in, apparently dead, when Lear is saying um, in the folio text, look there, look there, we're being invited to really scrutinize this body which again we kind of know is alive that this is an actor's body who is now not being permitted uh not being permitted to get up um and yeah again the play is making someone uh play dead in this in a similar way to the way Lear, the king Lear, the play was earlier making gloucester keep playing alive even though he didn't want to that's so interesting so there's sort of that in both cases i like that idea of shakespeare's kind of playing with the audience and making us sort of forcing us to say you know the one thing that an actor really struggles to do if they're trying to act dead is not breathe because they do eventually have to breathe and so constantly making us look at her for signs of breath and mm -hmm. tell us that we don't see them and then that being the opposite of uh, yeah that's so interesting but seeing the actor falling seeing it's an, an inadequate representation of a fall from a cliff top and yet forcing us to see that as a moment where we override the inadequacy of the theatre Mm -hmm. representational capacity in order to believe it and then pull the rug from under our feet and say ah oh, no it was just someone an actor falling over mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that's that's really fascinating and i like that it had a practical element of you literally <laughs> i mean presumably that was 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 that painful do you have any actor or clown training <laughs> well, that would enable you to draw on that no i, I <laughs> and and i think this is key i i never really um invested in the experiment so i wasn't jumping off chairs or anything like that mm -hmm. i was crumpling slowly to my knees more or less over and over again in the kitchen. 
Yeah, but then I guess that's the thing about the scene. It also can't involve, unless you're, I think some people have suggested you could be using the edge of the stage as a potential cliff. Mm. But even then the actor can't go over it because that's mm. part of the point. So, yeah. 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 Um, and so I think, yeah, that, I mean, that interplay I find is, is, I mean, in a way we, we think of Shakespeare as being this kind of great poet and having this tremendous transformational power with his verse. Um, and these scenes in particular, I think, I think often in the actor's body is where it really meets an acute kind of resistance. And it, it, it's striking, I think, how much he draws attention to the substance of the body in these moments, hadst thou been all the gossamer um, air, uh, thou shivered like an egg. And uh, with Cordelia, um, oh, you are men of stones, that, you know, that there's this, Shakespeare does seem to be calling attention to the fact that the body is just very body-like in these moments. And, and it's not like gossamer, it's not like air, um, it's not necessarily like stone, um, oh, it's too, too, solid or sallied or sullied flesh would melt oh that are a mockery king of snow that he's he's really interested it seems in characters wishing their body away and it mm. just being stuck there on stage yes yeah and that that impossibility of the thing that they're speaking the way that's kind of almost contradicted by their physical presence mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating well i think feel I could just keep asking you questions about Leah all day but I did say I wanted to ask you about the the second half of the thing you were talking about which was the power dynamics in the lecture theatre which mm. I suppose also speaks to the thing you hinted at you'd explain more which is the title of your book Shakespeare mm. and the Snowflakes so could you say a bit more about how those two things are in relation to each other? So it, it, this came about, uh, I'd given these lectures um, on Shakespeare and tragedy and slapstick in 2016. Um, and then when I repeated the lectures in, in 2017, um, the, I think it was the Daily Telegraph were, were the first to, to uh, get hold of basically our notes on courses. And um, we have lots of different lecture uh, series where, yeah, as I say, they have these warnings if it's not immediately obvious that there might be some content which is particularly um, discomforting, distressing, traumatic to, um, to individuals who might come along. Um, and the Telegraph, the BBC, um, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, then began to report on this as um, Cambridge University issuing trigger warnings for its Shakespeare teaching. Um, and so the story began to warp a little bit as it began to go to different news outlets. Um, by the time it got to places like Breitbart, Fox News, it was becoming a, a um, quite a broad brushed story. Shakespeare, mm. Shakespeare reading at Cambridge University now has trigger warnings attached. Um, and I think, um, yeah, what I, what I began to find as I was looking at these stories is, um, first of all, obviously they were missing out some aspects of why these lectures might be particularly challenging um, to people uh, who might have been traumatised in some of the ways that were, that were dealt with um, in the material that I was looking at, um, mm. and who might be potentially particularly distressed by the way these lectures were discussing the material, i.e. as comic, as ridiculous, as frivolous. Um, uh, the thing that then became really kind of interesting and also kind of grim is that once you began to look at the opinion columns that came out of this story, um, once you began to look at comments below the line under these stories, um, a lot of the people writing their opinions, their responses to this story about trigger warnings 
were enacting, it seemed to me, very similar literary strategies to some of the playwrights I was considering. So they were often seeking to turn these notional traumatised figures, these students who might have been affected by the lectures, um, into ridiculous slapstick, kind of not real figures as well. Mm. So the book, in the end, um, kind of went back to the lectures, looked at the literature um, afresh, partly by comparing it with what was going on in these kind of wider discussions below the line in media um, reports and opinion columns as well. That's so interesting. Yes, because I suppose the, the very thing about the term snowflakes is that, as you say, it kind of it makes ridiculous because it, it takes away the possibility that I suppose for anything tragic or horrific to become ridiculous, you have to stop thinking about it as a human being in pain and become somehow kind of distanced or outside. And so that image of the, of the snowflake is, is potentially doing that work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and were there particular sort of um, moments in your lectures that really sort of you felt opened up afresh when you were putting them in conversation with those below the line comments? I mean, I, I think, um, so when I was thinking about this, when I first started thinking about the lectures, I had um, I had been struck by the idea that I was talking about theatre and I was talking about bodies on stage and I was talking about the interactions between the body on stage and then the people watching the stage. And it, I had this idea that, hey, a lecture theatre is like that. But because I'm, one, very nervous when I lecture, and two, because I was always a really rubbish actor, I couldn't really make anything of that. So I had all these grand schemes that I would kind of, I don't know, fall over or something like that, or I would, yeah, I'd do something kind of physically interesting. Um, And I I never really did. There there was one lecture where I talked about um, the, the simulation of violence, and when I first gave the lecture in two, 2016, um, I uh, had a custard pie behind the lectern, which I wanted to take out and talk about um, and point out that, okay, this this is obviously not serious. No one's going to get hurt with this. But something about slapstick performance does tap into something that's actually happening. This custard pie is actually here. And it also has a very real kind of threat. So someone might actually get splurged with this custard pie. Um, I always wonder what would happen if someone just ran up to the front and just splurged it in my face. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then with, with this lecture, the, the idea that I'd had um, with the custard pie was it would be a useful way to sort of talk about stage violence in the abstract and then moved to some examples of stage violence. And so I moved from, from that to talking about um, Titus Andronicus, but also Sarah Kane's play Blasted, where the idea behind the move was that this would be a way of saying, this is partly about the content of the plays, but it's also partly about the form of the plays. It's about the simulation of violence. Um, and I think when I'd originally thought of that lecture, I thought, hey, that's kind of neat, that's surprising, that'll make the students come pay attention. And then when I when I gave that lecture um, for the first time, when I made that move, a student near the back got up and left. And I kept going with the lecture, but immediately kind of tensed up mm. for, you know, what the, what what's going on there. Um, also felt in that moment that my clever little move 
was really self-indulgent actually and and not something um that even though i think the lecture as a whole had been written as sensitively as as possible i haven't really thought enough about what that moment of surprise that moment of frivolity that moment of cleverness um might be like for someone who might potentially have have um experienced something like what i was talking about um so the 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 next year when i began the lecture rather than having that surprise move um i thought much more about how i was going to frame this i began the lecture so that both times the lecture had a warning symbol but that second time i gave the lecture the first kind of two three minutes were me saying i'm going to talk about custard pies and then i'm going to be talking about sexual assault on stage and this is the reason why mm. in some ways just better teaching practice i think all round um there was no real need to surprise students by making that link without them knowing that i was going to make that link it did strike me at that point and it struck me increasingly as i was beginning to think about um about what dramatists themselves do it did make me think that okay pedagogically there was no point me surprising students i didn't think in that way i did wonder if i was a, a brilliant dramatist and not writing a lecture but writing a piece of drama i did wonder then what under what circumstances might a playwright want to surprise to discomfort um and particularly particularly or, or, or perhaps injure um their their audience in some ways mm. um and that's something that, yeah, even writing the book is something that I, I kept, I kept coming back to, um, kept wondering. And I think even looking through comments online thought I manifestly didn't censor my lecture. I don't feel that the lecture was in any way diminished by, by framing it in this way. But I wondered whether dramatists would always feel the same way or whether they would always reserve the right to, in some ways, to behave unethically or to behave cruelly and injure their audience for some greater effect. It's still not something mm. I've really worked out. Yeah, and I think that's such a fascinating question because on the one hand it picks up the tension between the fact that a lecture is always a performance, but it's not the same as a theatrical performance. And Because I've similarly wondered about using you know, props, sound effects in lectures and similarly don't feel confident in my own, you know, acting ability to, to create a full performance for the, the students. But, um, you know, I've, I've used the, I've, I've knocked on wood for the knocking at the gates in Macbeth and that's kind of as far as I've gone to sort of trying to create aspects of theatricality. But you're right that there is a tension there between how a the kind of effective power of the performance, how it's meant to act on the bodies of your audience members if that's successful, and whether a lecture should have a similar effective power or whether in fact it should be trying to mitigate that power. I think that's a really interesting question about the, yeah, the kind of almost the pedagogical necessity for making less good theatre in order to make better teaching. Mm -hmm. so, and I don't think I've ever thought about it in quite those terms before. That's really interesting. But then, yeah, the sec that second question is also fascinating because I suppose that's, I suppose that's what theatrical genre, in a way, does in terms of making a promise to the audience of there might be some surprises, but this is ultimately what the shape of this play will be. Mm -hmm. And so then, when you get things like 
tragic comedies or problem plays or things that are twisting genre and turning it slightly upside down mm-hmm. that sort of upsets that that promise and as you say with the potential to sort of for the effective power of theatre to be a painful one or an injuring mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. yeah I mean I'd, I'd love to just keep unpacking all of this but I think we've probably got to the point of the conversation where I should ask you the question that we've been asking all our contributors in these bit lit chats which is what is literature um so so actually i I mean this is something that um yeah i've been trying to tease out and and i think you you you, yeah you you offered some really nice terms there um i I think on the one hand that then there does need to be the possibility of some affective response um there needs to be some some possibility of inhabiting the work that you are reading or, or watching, imagining yourself kind of in, in that place, in that kind of situation, in that environment or, or whatever. But then at the same time, it feels important to me, if, if you're going to keep discussing a work, that there should also be a possibility that you can stand outside that mm. and perhaps more dispassionately or coldly or something, um, be able to to examine the mechanics of it as well um and yeah it's, the the analogy that i keep coming back to i think is is something like an out-of-body experience that it's something i suppose that yeah you can at once be in you can inhabit the piece that you're you're thinking about but then also stand aside from it and kind of examine it from the different angles and and see how it's been put together I think that's where I ended up eventually. I was, I was comparing what I thought literature was with different things, like, I don't know, shopping lists or, you know, <laughs> terrible books that I don't want to study. Um, and I think that was where I eventually ended up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's really interesting because that circles back beautifully to the, the kind of Lear examples that we began with, because I suppose the things you were talking about where you're sort of jolted into questioning the thing that the playwrights just forced you to believe gives you simultaneously that effective power and that standing outside it and having to look at what's been just done to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Ian. It's been lovely getting the chance to chat to you about this. And um, is Shakespeare for Snow Lakes, is it available in all good bookshops? It is, well, it's it's available in all good bookshops, various less ethical booksellers as well. Um, (laughs) uh, You can pre-order it. It comes out actually on the 25th of September. Um, In the meantime, uh, if if you want to see me reading um, chapters from Shakespeare for for Snowflakes, um, I'm doing it every Monday from 7.30. But um, if you go to shakespeareforsnowflakes.com, um, then there'll be links there to just see me um, in this very room, actually, just reading <laughs> it at a time every Monday. So, um, yeah, so you can listen to it before you read it, if you'd like. Wonderful. So we've had a sneak preview of the set in that case for your, your Monday <laughs> performance. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you.